Before I start the interview today, I wanted to just hop on here and let you know about a few upcoming offerings. The first is that Jason is doing a webinar on August 31st, and the focus of the webinar is yoga teacher training as self-transformation. So it will be especially valuable to those of you who are considering any anyone's teacher training to think about the ways that it can add depth and breadth to your life as well as to your practice. And you can register for that at jasonyoga.com slash webinar. If you register for that webinar, you'll get an additional $50 off the registration early bird price for our 200-hour teacher training, which comes up October 24th. And so that's the other offering that we have is the 200-hour online training. Uh, It's an 11-week live interactive program with a year's worth of access to the content. And you have a year to work through everything and take your exam if you choose to take it to become a registered 200-hour yoga teacher with Yoga Alliance. The last thing is that Jason's week-long workshops in London are sold out. So a number of you have emailed about that. You can jump on the wait list and you can get to the wait list from jasonyoga.com slash London. Okay, here we go with the episode. We're more alike than different from even the animals that might seem quite different from ourselves, like a scorpion or a fish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the main thing. And that yoga with a capital Y, the yoking together of seemingly separate things, that is our goal in connecting with animals. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is Yogaland. Today, my guest is Allison Zach. Allison is a yoga teacher and wildlife conservationist based in Northern Virginia. She runs the Human Beaver Coexistence Fund, and she is the author of a new book called Wild Asana, Animals, Yoga, and Connecting Our Practice to the Natural World. It's her first book, and it is a lovely yoga and nature memoir. I enjoyed it so much. I felt like it was one of the most creative yoga books I have ever read uh, because it is really personal. It combines her her personal experience of yoga and of animals along with her background as a wildlife conservationist. I love this book so much that I chose it to be my third and last Yogaland book club book of the year. So if you would like to be a part of the book club, You can go to yogaland.substack.com and order the book. We'll get started together working through it on September 11th. And then Allison is going to come to the book club and talk to us on October 10th. And the, the talk with Allison is for paid members only, but you can join the rest of the book club for free. Thank you so much for being here, Alison. I absolutely loved your book. And as we were just talking about, I'm going to announce it as the next book club book for the Yogaland book club. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and about the book club. (laughs) (laughs) So I read in your bio and obviously reading your book, it's clear that you are not just an animal lover. You are, you study animals. And it says you're a wildlife conservationist and you founded an organization called the Human Beaver Coexistence Fund. You also say that the beaver is one of your favorite animals. So what does it mean 
to be a wildlife conservationist and why beavers? What it means to be a wildlife conservationist is working a lot more with people than anyone ever expects when they start out in the field. So I, my academic background is actually in anthropology and I ended up through kind of a long winding path, studying the interactions between people and animals in this very anthropological way. So my master's research was on crop rating monkeys. So the I specifically studied a species of endangered macaque on an island in Indonesia. And these monkeys were stealing farmers' crops, essentially. And the farmers were not too pleased about having their livelihoods affected by this animal. But And so I was studying from both kind of an ecological and primate behavior perspective, but also talking to the farmers, interviewing them and learning about their kind of history of relationship in living with these monkeys. And so when I came back from the field and started to work in the U.S. again, I experienced wild beavers for the first time and realized that there was a similar kind of, this was an example of human wildlife conflict that was happening in my own backyard, um, that I could apply many of the same concepts and themes that I had been studying for so long, but right where I was living. And so that's what led me to found uh, the Human Beaver Coexistence Fund. And what we do is we help We help landowners manage beaver problems, which admittedly beavers do cause uh, (laughs) a number of different problems for people, most often tree chewing, but most severely flooding in places where people do not want water. And so um, we help landowners manage those issues with non-lethal strategies. So that means historically, the reaction to those problems has been just trap and kill the beavers and get rid of them. But because of how important beavers are to our landscapes, to having clean water, to having water stored underground, um, we help people find a different way to coexist with the beavers. Um, And so my story, or what I like to say is that beavers filled the monkey-sized hole in my heart. (laughs) They are so much more than what we think of rodents to be. And that's why I love them so much. They're these little social groups and families that the older generation helps raise the younger generation and they're just incredible little creatures. So that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I could feel your excitement about animals and your love and it really comes through and you feel it as you're reading and it really connects you back to them. So I appreciate that so much. I have a very obviously basic question about beavers. When you were saying that they can cause flooding, like that's the opposite of what I would think that beavers do because we always think of beavers as building dams. So how how can they, how do they cause flooding? Yes. So great, great question. The dams that beavers build basically create the pond habitat that they need to thrive in, right? It's backing up water on the upstream side of the dam so that they have a pool of water that's deep enough for them to swim and escape land predators, but also deep enough so that it doesn't freeze through the winter because beavers don't hibernate. And so they need a certain depth of water 
and damming it on one side, damming a stream, for example, will create that deep pond on one side that they need, but it does actually restrict water flow downstream. Um, and so in, in a strange way, beavers create flooding on that really small scale. On the pond what, side? Yes. Oh, on their but side that, that they need. Okay. Exactly. But what that does when they do that in a, in a whole complex, like up and down a stream, all these little series of smaller dams, what that does is to store water on the landscape so that it you know refills the aquifers. And then when there is like a heavy rain event or a really severe storm, like we're seeing so much more of, that water is actually being slowed down mm. as it moves downstream. And so it's going to, when you get to a really developed, really paved area, it's actually helping to mitigate catastrophic effects of floods in those areas because it's storing water further up in the watershed. Hmm. Oh my gosh. So fascinating. Obviously you could do a whole podcast about your day job and <laughs> all about beavers and I'm tempted to do it right now, but we should probably stick to the book. Okay. So talk to me about your yoga side. So you're also a, a yoga teacher and a yoga practitioner and how and when did that come to be for you? So I have been practicing yoga since I was about 18 years old. Off and on, I don't have one of those like dramatic yoga origin stories where it changed my life in a big way. But I just was interested and curious. I took um, my first classes probably in high school and then just always kept exploring. Um, and then I became a teacher. I actually finished teacher training in 2020, which wasn't great timing. That's tough, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> so I've only been teaching for just a few years. Um, but nature has always inspired my practice. And not always in ways that I even realized, probably. But then I did start to, by thinking about a lot of those things in a more intentional way through my teacher training, I started to think about how nature could inspire my teaching of yoga as well. And so that's how all of that kind of came together. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was definitely curious about that. I mean, so the book is laid out after the intro, each chapter focuses on um, an animal that is reflected in a yoga pose. So when I first read it, I thought, well, this is such a great concept. It makes total sense. I would love to know the thought process that went into developing the book. And did it develop over years where you're like making the connections in your own practice and teaching? Yeah. I always say that I don't have a great answer to how the concept came to be um, other than just kind of integrating these two parts of myself over years, I think. But what really the spark of it, I say, is when I had this realization that we are practicing these poses that are embodying the physical forms of other animals. And we rarely think about those animals when we're in that shape. So how many times have we practiced cobra pose as yoga teachers or practitioners? Hundreds or thousands of times. But how many of those times have we actually thought about a cobra? And how would it change our practice if we did that more often? And so that was kind of like the spark of the idea for the book. And then honestly, the title came to me 
before anything else. And it's a different title than what the book has now. <laughs> um, the original title was Animal Asana, Yoga Beyond Human Being. And throughout the publishing process, that kind of changed for a it variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, it always does. <laughs> but the concept, so as soon as kind of that concept came to me, the structure was pretty obvious right away that these different essays would focus on different animals that have yoga poses named after them. Um, and then the real work of it became like, okay, well, what is going to be the theme of this chapter? And what is my own? What have I had to learn through my personal experiences and practice about mm -hmm. those animals? Because I do call it a nature memoir through a yoga lens. It's intended to be even a little bit more nature writing than a yoga book. Mm -hmm. But that is, of course, kind of like the frame through which I'm, I'm exploring these mm -hmm. concepts. So I think as a yogi reading it, it's really informative. And I like that lens because this is a book that is really captivating to a yogi, but because it's told through stories of nature and, and it's research oriented as well, you're completely learning new things as a yogi, but it's all also tying back to this concept of unity. So in the introduction, you spend a good amount of time, which I think is really important, just laying out the concept and the aim of the book. So what would you say you hope for people to, in, in, on a macro level, for people to take away mm -hmm. from the book? Mm -hmm referring to the introduction I always joke my mom said it was too dense <laughs> when she read the book <laughs> I didn't think so and I didn't I think, think so <laughs> I think <laughs> it's it's funny now and she like rolls her eyes that I share this with people but um it really does I think define a lot of the terms that I use that I have been thinking about for many years but that probably not a lot of other people <laughs> have thought as hard about. And so I think it really does kind of set up not only from a more intellectual perspective, like some of the things that I'm talking about, like number one, like what is a species even? And does that matter in this mm -hmm. conversation? And my argument is that the, the whole biological species concept is actually something that creates separation. Mm -hmm. similarly the term anthropomorphism so in my scientific life this is something that I was trained to avoid so anthropomorphism is when we attribute human characteristics to other animals and it's something that I had to come back to in my spiritual life as being a very important practice because believing that anthropomorphism is a problem again is something that's creating separation and preventing us from seeing ourselves as, as the animals that we are. Mm -hmm. And so that's the main thing that I hope people would take from the intro and ultimately from the whole book is that we're animals ourselves and that we're more alike than different from even the animals that might seem <laughs> quite different from ourselves, like a scorpion or a fish. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing. And that yoga with a capital Y, the yoking together of seemingly separate things, that is our goal in connecting with animals through these poses or these mindful practices or whatever it may be for people. It doesn't have to be asana. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just think it makes so much sense, this concept. So you can explain in the intro that 
from a scientific standpoint, you were discouraged from anthropomorphizing, but you make the point that actually you, so you coined the word, I don't even know how you say it, anthropodenial. Did you coin it? So I did not actually. A primatologist named Franz de Waal, he is the one who coined that term, which is denying that other animals will share characteristics with us as humans or denying that we are, that we're also animals, essentially. And so when we think about just our relationship with our pets, we anthropomorphize them all the time. We're like, oh, look at her smile. Oh, look, she went, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. all day long. We do that to our pets because we love them so much and they're a part of our family. But like you said, we don't do that with as, as often with so many other animals, including the animals we eat, which just makes, you know, I still, it's a struggle, struggle for me. (laughs) But actually, I also appreciated that when you were talking about the fish, you... (laughs) You said you told a story of going to the aquarium one day and then looking at all the beautiful fish. And then I can't remember. You went and had a lobster roll going after some seafood lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and I recognized it in that moment. Even. Right. And it, it you know, it I was call nice myself that now. You, it was nice that you, it, it made it so that the book didn't come across as morally superior. You know, like right. it was an invitation. It's an invitation, Good. which is really, Good. I appreciate so, so much. I did not want it to sound preachy in that way. And now I basically identify as a vegetarian who cheats. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's, I like that. (laughs) So, you know, we have to go easy on ourselves, but even if we eat meat, even when we eat meat, we can still do it mindfully. We can still do it with the animal's well-being in mind there. It's like not a black and white issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am curious if you have a favorite chapter, I have a favorite chapter. Oh, I love hearing what readers' <laughs> favorite chapters are. I Yes, I do. It's hard to choose, but um, the one that's like just in my heart right now is my favorite is the snake or the serpent chapter. Okay. Yeah. It is, it's, it's, an, well, snakes to begin with are just one of those animals that run the entire gamut of our human kind of like reactions to them, our perceptions of them, um, religious associations. Mm -hmm. I mean, snakes are everything from the actual devil here on earth to the animal that sheltered the Buddha under Mm -hmm. the, you know, as he was becoming enlightened. And so it's just a really fraught animal (laughs) example for exploring some of these things. But I also write about, it's the only chapter in the book that has a fictionalized little vignette Mm -hmm. of what life might actually be like to be an animal in a certain Mm -hmm. context. So in Mm -hmm. the snake chapter, it is um, in a snake handling service at a science following church somewhere in Appalachia, fictional, of course, but what that experience might be like for the snake, because I don't think people wonder about that too often. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So that one is close to my heart. What's your favorite? My favorite is Matsya, which is your first chapter. And I think it's because you, well, you tell the story of when you were in middle school, you had this like very yogic experience with a school of fish and that was beautifully described. And fish are so beautiful, but I rarely actually think about them. And it made me think about them. And Mm -hmm. also... You describe your pet fish, Matsya, and the relationship you have with that fish. And you just 
you shared some facts that I never knew. So he's, um, I'm trying to, I can blanking on the type of, he's like that. He's a beta. He's a beta, beta that so many kids yep. have, right? The ones that are in the cups in every pet store. Yes. And they're yep. so flowy and beautiful, Yeah, but you rarely do, you know, do anything for them. And you described how like you, you made the water in the tank lower because that they usually swim in more shallow water and they make their nest with, with bubbles I, I thought it was like so fascinating to me. And, um, and also, you know, you, you point out a lot throughout the book, how important language is that we use in reference to animals. And so there was one section where you talk about how it's, it's important to, re, re, to refer to the plural of fish as fishes and not just mm-hmm. fish, because you're sort of taking away their identity their individuality right you're taking their individuality when you refer to them all as the singular so I just I felt like I learned so much from that chapter and and then the last thing I actually wanted to ask you about this a little more specifically is you cited some interesting research about how they can feel pain and emotional distress and even you even cited like feeling depression in fish Mm -hmm. so Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit, and I'm putting you on the spot here because I know this is very specific research, but how did they research that? How was that done? Yeah, that, so I will tell you what book that I read that really, it's heavy on citations. It's a bit of an academic read, but it's called What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Balcombe, I believe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to double check that. But um, anyway, it's one book where I just learned so many things that are, it's scientifically proven, these things that we never thought (laughs) we could know about fishes that we're slowly over time learning. And that of course, probably shouldn't be as surprising as they are. But yeah, you're referring to one of the studies that he wrote about where these were captive fishes, and I do forget what kind of fishes they were. But although a lot of a lot of captive and kind of like cognitive research on, has been done on either goldfishes or koi. So oh, fish, that's right. fishes that seen, we're familiar with, right? I have seen research on koi. Yeah. And I don't think this particular study was done on koi. There was another fascinating one where koi fishes can learn to distinguish between different musical genres. <laughs> But that's a whole other thing with the question of fishes and feeling pain. So first of all, this is one of those species where like, it's a little alarming that we're asking that question because for, for a mammal, for example, we would not be having this conversation at this point, but it, there are scientific studies that show that fishes do feel both physical and emotional pain. When it comes to physical pain, they have studied the extent to which there's like that initial like acute pain of an injury and then a longer chronic type of pain that they can feel. Um, And the one that you're referring to is that some kind of captive fishes, I don't remember which, but they basically created this scenario in a tank where they had no, no stimulation. They basically created depression in fishes by giving them nothing to do, nothing to look at, no natural behaviors. And then they treated them with, I forget what it was, but it's one of the medicines that we would use to treat a mental illness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in humans Mm -hmm. and added it to the water and saw improvement 
in the fish's behavior. And I'm not explaining this perfectly no, no, well, no, it but makes, yeah, it makes total um, sense. It, that was one of the really fascinating, just thinking about not even just physical pain, but that they, they have mental health. <laughs> I, I'm that just blew my mind. And then yeah. as it blew my mind, it also, like you said, was also kind of like, well, of course, I mean, exactly. we're all sentient beings. Mm-hmm. How, wh- why, you know, and it's like you said, it's this whole idea that we separate ourselves. It's so much easier to separate ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. I even find that we even do that with other humans all the mm-hmm. time, constantly all day long. And we don't think about it. It's just embedded. It's just there. And I mean, it's not going to ever completely go away, but to have those moments of remembering, I think are actually really critical and like beautiful part of yoga practice. Mm -hmm. I always say like, I continue to do yoga after all these years because it helps me to remember everything. Helps me remember myself. Helps me to remember like the poignancy and, and beauty of life. It helps me to remember to allow the bad feelings and the difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. It just helps me to remember I'm not so separate. So yeah, the fish chapter, also the pigeon, the pigeon oh, chapter. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, Connecting with a critter that we could all probably go out and find easily enough. <laughs> right. And just the, the like how, I think you set it up so well with the dichotomy between the way we feel about doves versus the way we feel about pigeon, like city mm-hmm. pigeons and just how it's once again, that sense of separation, just basically based on, I think really it's based on how they look. Don't you think? Right. Or just the fact that they're, you know, there's this idea that we have expectations about where animals should be, what they should be doing. And when they use their own agency and cross those boundaries, we can't handle it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although we're supposedly such a, uh, such an intelligent species. <laughs> yeah. But easily threatened. We're easily right. threatened. Right. Yeah. Even by <laughs> creatures that are smaller than us. Was there any chapter that you wrote that felt surprising to you where you, something came out of you that you weren't expecting or where you learned something new? Yes. The hardest chapter. The, for me the eagle to, chapter? Um, not eagle, actually. Okay. I'm happy to also talk about eagle. What's tricky about that situation? So eagle is where I wrote about something very personal that was happening to me and vulnerable. It's probably the most vulnerable chapter in the book that is ongoing in my life. And yeah. so since I wrote that chapter to when it has gone out into the world, there has been just like a lot of changes <laughs> to what what have happened since I wrote that chapter. But the other one I was thinking of was camel. So I had this idea because I'm a I'm a crafter. I knit and crochet and I had this brilliant idea from the very beginning that I was going to write a chapter that was about connecting with another animal through crafting with their fiber. And it just wasn't working. I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And I was knitting with camel wool, with camel yarn. And I had to learn through writing that chapter that, you know, sometimes we're limited in how we can connect with another animal. And that's okay. And that in part, I was being limited by only working with a a fraction of who that animal actually was. 
but also I was limited to researching resources in English about camels and that there is just not a lot, a lot out there about humans relationship with camels. That's not completely focused on what camels provide for humans. And I'm still pretty confident that there's other sources out there, perhaps in Arabic and other languages that I cannot read <laughs> that where that exists. Mm -hmm. But me being the animal I am and speaking English and only available to certain resources and certain parts of the camel, that was a good lesson for me on the ways that we're limited and that right. that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. So Eagle was another one of my favorite chapters because you did share something so personal to you. And I know that it will be helpful to so many people. And it was just so beautiful to think about animals grieving. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you would be open to, to sh sharing a little bit about that chapter. With of course. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. One of the reasons why I even included it in the book is because, so it's about my experience with infertility and um, it's a, it's a pretty personal and vulnerable thing to share, but it's something that I knew was going out in a book that others would read. Right. And um, the reason why I was okay with that is because one of the things that has helped me cope with the stress and the grief of this whole experience for me has been reading other people's experiences, listening to other people on podcasts that have gone through the same thing and that made me feel less alone. And so I'm happy to do that for others. So the so the way that I connect eagles and infertility is through talking about, you know, the harmful effects of DDT and how it affected raptor and eagle reproduction decades ago and how we got to a place where we kind of recovered from that catastrophe yeah. <laughs> and linking it to eagle pose. And this is one um, example that I'm super glad we're talking about too, because with eagle and also with a monkey, these are poses that aren't actually named after animals, but are named after Hindu deities. Mm -hmm. And so this is a great opportunity for us as yoga practitioners to explore the mythology of where these poses come from, in addition to the ecology and the behavior of the animals. Because with Garuda, who is the, the deity that Garudasana, the one that we commonly call eagle pose, is named after, it is that pose itself, which is you know, if you know what eagle pose looks like, you're like, that looks nothing like an eagle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I dove into why is that, why is that Garudasana? And it comes from a part of the Ramayana when Ram and Lakshman are in battle with Ravana and they are being just in completely entangled in snakes in battle. And so that's what the actual pose is. That's why we intertwine our legs and our arms and it's a balancing pose. And it's this pose where we kind of just have to surrender to feeling entangled. And then Garuda is the hero of that moment. He comes and frees uh, the warriors from the snakes. And so that release of the pose is kind of the best part and that freedom from entanglement. But but also surrendering to the moment where you're uncomfortable and uncertain. And so that's where it all comes back around to my own experience with infertility as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked through the, the mourning patterns, the grieving patterns of the eagles. And I also thought you did 
such a nice job at the end of the chapter of talking about, and this is so important, it's such an important reminder, especially right now with so much going on in the world. And yeah, that sometimes you question into this world at this point mm-hmm. and that there's yeah. just so many bad things happening and climate change <laughs> and all of this stuff. But it's that being able to hold the reality along with the hope that things can change or that that life is still beautiful, that it's still worth it. Like that, holding those contradictions is is so important. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that, I was just so glad that you included that. It was really, really good insight and wise insight on your part. Thank you. That was an interesting decision too. This whole chapter, it's one of those that could have gone either way because mm-hmm. it seems a, li- a little bit like because I'm still in that experience. And so it's one of, it can be hard to write about a part of your life that you haven't been distanced enough from to process. And it can seem just a little bit too much like, you know, a diary entry or something, (laughs) which is never good in a memoir. But I remember my editor specifically asking me to elaborate on exactly the point that you're mentioning, like this whole conflict within me and my, and my partner to even bring a child into the world and how nuanced (laughs) this Mm -hmm. whole this whole conflict is for us because you know we're not even sure day to day given what's in the news if that's the best decision Mm -hmm. but ultimately like you said what I have decided what we have decided is that like the hope of raising another little chick that will (laughs) that will contribute in a positive way is is more important than the fear of not doing it. Yeah. So. And we can only be so rational, right? We're, mm-hmm. humans are a mixture of art and science. We're, we're a mixture of logic and intuition and feeling. So yeah, you can only make the best decision possible in, in the moment. And then surrender to whatever is because, you know, th- that we can make that decision, but we also can't control whether or not we will actually have a child. And so right, that's right, the, right. that's the surrender piece. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. wish you the best as you keep, keep on this you. journey. Um, I wonder, oh, I was going to talk about Shvana, the dog chapter. And then, and then I would love if, if I would love to wrap up by having you read a little bit, if you're open to that. Okay. I mean, I ha- I just, in the terms of this conversation, I feel like I just had to pull out Shvana because mm-hmm. it's, it's so interesting that in human lives, dogs are just so central. And then in yoga, um, dog pose is such a foundational central pose. And I think it actually is one of the few poses that we connect to the animal pretty easily because we see our dogs I do agree. it all, all the time. <laughs> and you mentioned like they're doing it when they stretch or they do it when they're play, they play bow. But I thought you did a nice, nice thing with this chapter, which is that you went beyond just the human dog and, or sorry, I shouldn't say the human dog. <laughs> That's pretty domestic funny, huh? dog. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, the it domesticated works. animal canine and all of the other canines out there. And you talk about that hypocritical relationship we have where we love our dogs as pets, but throughout history, we tried to eradicate wolves and coyotes. And again, I love your use of language. You introduced two phrases here talking about this. One is care switching and the other is dognitive dissonance. So can you talk about those two phrases and what they mean? Of course. 
I was very playful with yeah. language in this chapter. It's memorable. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so care switching is borrowed from the linguistic concept of code switching, which is when someone changes the way that they speak based on what context they're in. Mm-hmm. And then very related to that with, <laughs> I changed it to dognitive dissonance, but of course, cognitive dissonance is this um, concept from psychology where we have discrepancies in like pairs of cognitions. And so what that means for dogs and humans is that there's such a difference between the ways that we love the domestic dogs that we share our lives with and our homes with and spend, I don't know, millions, billions of dollars as a society (laughs) every year in caring for them and contrasted with the ways that we despise and kill and hate coyotes and wolves depending on who you are so like wolves is a big one in the conservation community where there's just completely polarized how people are feeling coyotes is a little it's a bit more of a good example in the sense that this one person could have a pet dog that they love and then shoot a coyote on their property on site no questions asked because it's vermin, because it's a pest, because it might kill their livestock or it might, you know. And so those two terms, what that whole kind of section is really getting at is how complicated Mm -hmm. it is when we coexist and connect with animals. And that that's okay. And that like, just reflecting on that and considering the nuance is the most important first step. This is something that I see in my beaver work as well. Um, and something that I deal with professionally on a day-to-day basis. So it's not that I don't believe you can change someone's mind about either trapping a beaver or shooting a coyote, but it's that it's not a simple thing. You have to, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, when I said that conservation and connecting with animals is all about humans, you have to appeal to the person's identity. You have to understand what they really value. And you just have to understand that sometimes this business of of connecting with or showing compassion for animals can be very complicated and nuanced, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. I mean, it's not unlike trying to connect with other humans, all different exactly. kinds of humans. It's super complicated and mm-hmm. it's, it's some, and it, it doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile endeavor. <laughs> right. It's a necessary endeavor, but it's right. good to just take a step back and recognize like, this is not always easy and it's not always going to be easy. Right. There will, there will be cognitive dissonance and it's not something to like beat ourselves up over. It's just something to notice. Mm-hmm. And then, that you know think a little bit more about like I give the the coyote example is a more dramatic one that a lot of my readers might not relate to but even I give the example of showing a kid a picture of a cow in a picture book teaching them what noises all the farm animals make and then feeding them those animals for dinner that's a more I think accessible example of what we're talking about sure I'm not saying that's wrong yeah but just to be reflective but to be aware. Yes. Again, what we're trying to cultivate in yoga. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Would you mind reading? Let's see. It's the last chapter. Well, it's the chapter before 
the sequence section. So it is the conclusion. It is Tadasana Mountain Pose. Yes, I'd okay. love to. It's the only chapter that's not an animal, but I think yes. you'll see why. <laughs> Aldo Leopold, environmentalist and author of the Sand County Almanac, published an essay in 1949 titled Thinking Like a Mountain. But I don't think mountains think. I feel that they feel. Leopold had to learn that the mountain needed grass and deer and wolves, but the mountain already knew. She could feel the tickle of the fish's fins, the silent whoosh of the eagle's wing, the pricking of the bobcat's claws in her soil, and the warmth from the body of the decomposing dove. The green fire that Leopold watched fade from the eyes of the wolf mother he shot and killed not only dwells within the wolf and the mountain, but also burns deep inside our own hearts. The mountain feels our footsteps when we walk and our hearts beat when we lie down upon the earth. She feels that we are all connected, interdependent. From her perspective, we are all animals and we are all the sacred same despite our celebrated differences. Leopold also wrote, only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf, end quote. But why would she want to? Mountains are not objective beings and neither are we. I want to listen to the howl of a wolf and feel something. Fear, love, sorrow, joy, all of the holy above. I want to be anything but objective. I want to be alive and complex and ever-changing. I want to feel wild when I listen to wolves because the wild is within me. If wildness is the preservation of the world, as Henry David Thoreau wrote, then being and feeling instead of thinking like a mountain, will better help us discover the wild inside. Our wildness is not lost or gone or forgotten. It is temporarily unrealized. Realizing it will be painfully simple and profoundly healing, like breathing or watching the sunrise while watching the sunrise. It will be worth it. This is not a quaint idea or friendly invitation. It is an urgent plea. Connecting with other animals in mindful and meaningful ways is our responsibility. It doesn't have to happen out in pristine wilderness, in solitude or under risky conditions like it did for the naturalists of yore. It happens in our homes and backyards and cities, with our families and communities, infused with our cultures. It can happen on our yoga mats, but it doesn't have to. There's never only one path or practice that leads to this worthy destination. Our goal does have to be yoga, though, in its most universal sense, the yoking of ourselves to other beings and to nature in wild ways so that we can save each other and our earth. Stand tall in mountain pose, Tadasana, simultaneously rooted and rising tall. Ditch your yoga mat and let the grass tickle your skin. Don't only imagine rooting your feet into the earth. Do it. Feel the dampness of the dirt. Let mosquitoes buzz around your face. Delight in ants dancing in the grass. Embody the pigeon, the snake, the cat, in form and in thought as you breathe your own animal breath and move your own animal body into shapes that revere your fellow creatures, yourself. Make your green fire fierce, less thinking, more being and feeling, and more mountains, always more mountains. So beautiful. Thank you so much. 
And that gives people a little sample of your writing, which is just so lovely. So thank you for sharing it with all of us. I'm, I really, I just, I cherish this book and thanks for being here today too. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 308. And I will put a link to Allison's book there so you can purchase it and please come join the book club and, and we'll talk more about all of the animals and are embodying them in our poses. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you enjoy Yoga Land, please share it on social media, share it with friends, talk to your neighbors about it. And it's always super helpful if you leave a review and or a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to Yoga Land. I appreciate it so, so, so much. And even though I can't email every one of you, I acknowledge and really reading anything that helps you out with Yoga Land absolutely makes my day. So thanks so much for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.